this has been, a, unfortunately, a very difficult year for me, uh, beginning with the fact that earlier this year, my mother passed away. And uh, I've been doing a series at the church that I pastor, a series entitled Lessons I Learned from My Mother. And, and I just want to share briefly with you this morning uh, one of the valuable lessons that I learned from my mother. So if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, then I believe that the text this, for this morning will appear on the screen. Uh, Daniel chapter 3. If you've ever been in church for any amount of time, if you've ever attended even two or three Sunday school classes, you should be familiar with the story of Daniel chapter 3. What I want to do this morning is I want to take an unfamiliar look at a very familiar passage, an unfamiliar look at a very familiar passage. This morning, I'm, I'm not going to discuss how the story ends. We all know how the story ends. The story ends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being miraculous, miraculously rescued from the flaming fires by the presence of God. Instead, I want to focus our attention this morning on a speech that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make to King Nebuchadnezzar, affirming what they believe about God. Daniel chapter 3 beginning in verse 16. I want to read through verse 18, and, and then I want to breathe a quick word of prayer. And then hopefully God will speak through me to you. The word of God reads this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Look at your neighbor and says he's able. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but what they say, that, that, that can be shaking to some of us who have faith, who are believing, who are trusting God to do something in miraculous and significant in our lives. They, they say this, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he doesn't, we will still be faithful. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me this morning? Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach us great and incredible truths uh, from your word, Lord God, so that our lives would be different. And because we know that we encounter you in your word, you are in your word. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. Uh, we pray that nothing would distract us from from this encounter, not the failings of your preacher and not the enemy who does not want your people to receive the truths that you've prepared for them this morning through your word. 
And Father, we, our prayer is that we want to see you lifted high. We want to see you high and lifted up. So we pray that you and you alone would be exalted as your word is explained. And we pray this in the mighty and the massless name of Jesus and all who are God's people said, Amen. Amen. My mom was an immigrant. And every immigrant comes to this country dreaming, hoping of finding one thing, a good job. Now, the definition and understanding of a good job varies depending on context and city. But a good job, at minimum, does a few things. A, a good job allows you to keep a roof over your head. A, a good job allows you to put clothes on your back and, and clothes on your children's back. A, a, a good job means that your, your table is always full of food. And, and a good job also means that every now and then, you can treat you and your kids to certain luxuries. And, and my mom finally found a good job when she became a cook at this company called Jerry's Caterers. At that time, she was making $6 an hour and could work all the overtime that she wanted to. Now, some of you may be laughing at $6 an hour, but that's because you've forgotten what life was like <laughs> in the 1980s. In the early 1980s, minimum wage was $3.65 an hour. And in the 1980s, you, you can get a, a two, three bedroom apartment for less than $400 a month. And in the 1980s, you, you can put clothes on your back and, and shoes on your feet for $6 an hour. So my mom working at this job, making $6 an hour, she was making good money. It meant for me that I always had on the latest fit. It meant for me, I always had all the toys that I wanted and it, and it meant for me that my mama always had McDonald's money. <laughs> the one drawback about this good job is that it required my mother to work on the days when we went to church. So it meant that she couldn't go to church with, with her and her six children. And regardless of how much she pleaded, she begged her boss to give her one day off a week so that she can go off, so that she can go to church with her children. Her boss refused. So in fact, uh, the job did the exact opposite. The one day off a week, that she wanted so she can go to church with her kids, they, they made her supervisor of that shift that one day. And as my mom grew stronger and more mature in her faith, she felt that it was extremely important uh, for her to go to church with her children. So after much prayer and careful deliberation, she did what was unthinkable at the time. Believing that God would give her another good job, 
she quit the good job that she had. What should have happened next was for God to reward my mother's faith by helping her find another good job. That never happened. From the day she made her, her faith decision to quit her job until the day I went off to college, our family struggled to make ends meet. I was only about eight or nine years old when, when she quit her good job. And, and from that point, we constantly were behind on rent. I had to wear hand-me-down clothes from my older brother, and I had to shop at, at thrift stores, not because I wanted to, but out of necessity. Our family frequently had to eat oatmeal for dinner, <laughs> and no longer did we have McDonald's money. That decision that my mom made to quit her good job to this day traumatizes me in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. It, it, it took me long, a long time to reconcile what she did. And, and for much of my life, I, I blame God. I, from about 15 years old until I was about 21, 22, I, I refused to go to church because in my mind, God should have blessed my mother because of the decision that she made. I resented God. But my mother, for her part, she never felt the same way. Despite our difficult financial times, she never regretted her decision one day in her life. She never regretted it because she understood that God was not obligated to bless every decision that we make on his part. Let me say it again in case you missed it. God is not obligated to bless the decisions that you make for him. And in fact, this is the lesson that my mother taught me. Sometimes you make decisions for God, not because you expect God to bless you. Sometimes you make decisions for God simply because you want to bless God. <laughs> if you were to create a, a Mount Rushmore of Sunday school stories, create a list of the greatest and most well-known Bible stories ever, then Daniel 3 would, would be at the top of your list. Uh, Daniel 3 would be at the top of your list because it contains all the elements of a great story. There are heroes who stand their ground courageously against a, a cruel and wicked enemy. And perhaps the greatest part of this story is that at the end of the story, because of their faithful stand, our heroes are rewarded by God. They are miraculously rescued from the fiery furnace. And, and more so than that, they are elevated to a position higher than they were when they started the story, all because they were faithful to God. And sometimes when we 
read this story, we also have the same expectations for our lives that what God did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God will also do for us. But if we read the end of the story thinking that it's the point of the story, then we miss the point of the story. The point of the story is not what happens at the end of the story. The point of the story is what happens in the middle of the story. The middle of the story contains this unbelievable speech that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make. And everything in that story flows to that middle. There are three events that happen before the middle of the story, and there are three events that happen after the middle of the story. It's almost as if the author of the book of Daniel is pointing to the middle of the story saying, pay attention to this part. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to really, really pay attention to what I believe is the point of the story. The story itself is framed around two conflict stories, two conflict stories. The first conflict story that leads to the greater conflict is the conflict that happens between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the Chaldeans, the, the officials who point out that they're not worshiping the idol that was created by King Nebuchadnezzar. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar constructs this huge statue and he informs his officials that they are to fall down and worship the statue whenever they hear this large band that King Nebuchadnezzar had assembled begin to play. We don't know much about the statue. We don't know if the statue was was an image of King Nebuchadnezzar or, or one of the Babylonian kings. What we do know about the statue was that it was absolutely huge. That statue, when we look at its dimensions, was about as big as the Statue of Liberty. And because King Nebuchadnezzar says that people must worship the statue, it points, it, it, it puts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at a point of conflict. Babylonia, Babylon at the time, was this cosmopolitan empire filled with all these different people from all these different nations, all of whom were used to worshiping a plurality of gods. So everybody else in Babylon would have been comfortable worshiping the idol. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they were Jews, because they were Israelites, worshiping an idol would have been a clear violation of the second of the Ten Commandments, where, where God said, don't worship any other God besides me. And initially, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could get away without worship, with, with worshiping, without worshiping the statue because no one was paying attention to them until later on in the story we read that the Chaldeans, the, the officials who worked with Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego reported to the king that they were not worshiping the statue like the king had decreed. And when you read verse 12 of chapter 3, we discover why they reported the behavior of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the king. It was out of professional jealousy. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and, and Daniel were part of a small group of Israelites who because of their appearance and because of their aptitude had become part of the royal Babylonian court. But it was because of God's favor that they succeeded in that court. Every time we read the book of Daniel, we discover how God is blessing either Daniel or some of the people he's around. He, he's constantly elevating them. And, and the Chaldeans report to King Nebuchadnezzar speaks to us about the flip side of favor. All of you, I'm sure of it, has been asking God to do something incredible on your life, on your behalf, for God to, to bless you, for God to increase you, for God to promote you. But there's a flip side that comes with God's blessings. Whenever God grants you favor, whenever God blesses you, whenever God works on your behalf, know this, other people who see God favoring you, other people who notice God's blessings are on your life will be envious of what God is doing for you. Every time there is favor, there also comes envy and jealousy. And we read about it as early as the existence of people themselves. Abel killed his brother Cain because God favored Cain's uh, sacrifice. Whenever God favors you, there also comes divine envy. Saul tried to kill David because God favored David and gave David the throne. Whenever God favors you, there will also be envy that comes along with it. And, and a group of Jewish religious leaders orchestrated a plot to kill Jesus that ultimately led to Jesus's crucifixion because they saw the hand of God on the ministry of Jesus. Every time God favors you, know that people will be envious and jealousy of you. There's, there's a price to pay for favor. Yeah. <laughs> that God at times will have to prepare the table before you in the presence of your enemies. But, but if people don't hate me, for being favored by God, let him hate. <laughs> I'm not going to sacrifice favor in exchange for you not to be envious of me. And it's the envy of the Chaldeans, the, who were part of the royal court of Babylon, that creates the, the great conflict that, that the entire story is framed around. The Chaldeans maliciously report 
what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are doing to King Nebuchadnezzar, who immediately summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. And, and perhaps as a sign of, of mercy, he gives them one last opportunity to obey the decree. He reminds them of what the decree stated. He says that when you hear the band playing, you, you, you need to bow down and, and worship this statue. And he gives them one final opportunity to do just that. But before doing that, he issues this threat. He says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what God is able to rescue you from my power? The challenge is not made to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The challenge is made to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the real conflict, the conflict that drives the story is the conflict between King Nebuchadnezzar and God. Nebuchadnezzar's challenge sets the stage for the climax of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's confession. The first part of their confession expresses their conviction and confidence in God's power to deliver. They declare that God is able. They say in verse 17 that our God is, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. God's ability, his capable power is the truth that scripture stresses from the first page of Genesis to the very last page of Revelation. Genesis 1 opens with the story of how an all-powerful and all-capable God subdued the forces of chaos, bringing light from darkness and filling an empty void with life. And God did all this with the power of his word. The first page of the Bible teaches us that God is able. And the last page of the Bible reminds us that there will come a day when all the forces that have risen up against God, that all the forces that have risen up against God's people will be subdued and destroyed and God will elevate his people. The last page of the Bible teaches us that God is able. And every page from the first to the last also teaches us this same truth that, that God is able, God is able to divide a raging sea so that his people can walk through it. God is able, he is able to multiply the provisions of a widowed woman so that she and her son and God's prophet have enough supplies to eat during a severe drought. God is able, he is able to exercise a thousand demons from a man who had gone mad. God is able, he is able to heal a community of lepers. God is able, and he is able to call life from death, God is able. I, I can think of no better way to comfort those of you who are going through some things. Those of you who, who feel that, that there's no hope for you. Those of you who don't see a way out. 
than what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego first say to King Nebuchadnezzar that our God is able. They, they confess that God is able, but even in their confident avowal of God's power, they do presume that God will. They leave room in there for confession for God to exercise what, what is known as divine freedom. Divine freedom says this, that God is free to act and will and do whatever he pleases. He is self-determining and he is not bound to anything apart from his own plans and purposes. Psalm 115 verse 3 puts it this way. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, which means he can choose to rescue or he can choose not to intervene. He can choose to give you that job or he can choose to leave you where you're at. He can choose to fix the relationship or he can choose to leave it broken. God, in all matters pertaining to human history and human life, can choose what he wants to do. He's not obligated to act in one specific way. And the issue for most people who claim to believe in God is that we acknowledge his power, but we refuse to accept his freedom. We acknowledge his power, but we refuse to accept his freedom. We don't say that God is free not to act in how we think he should act. We don't say that, that God is free not to do what we think he should do. And whenever God does exercise his freedom, what happens? Stop coming to church, stop praying, stop praising, and, and, and stop accepting that God is free, that he's able. But, but here's the lesson that my mother taught me, expressed in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even when God chooses to exercise his freedom, that should not impact our faithfulness. You just missed your shouting point. Let me say it again. <laughs> Even when God chooses to exercise his freedom, it should not impact our faithfulness. Look at what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Even if he doesn't, we will still remain faithful. Is there anybody here this morning who has a Shadrach, Meshach, and the Abednego faith that even if he doesn't bless you, you're still going to praise him. Even if he doesn't give you what you want, you're still going to serve him. Even if he doesn't do what you think he should do, that will not affect your relationship with God. Even when he doesn't, I'm still going to remain faithful. My mom used to put it this way. Even if he doesn't find me another job, 
God is always worthy. Even if he doesn't do another thing for you, our God is worthy. And I, I don't say that to discourage you. I'm saying that to, to help increase your commitment to God because for some of you, your faith is only transactional. You believe that you can use your faith as if it's a commodity to purchase something from God. That, that, that if I do this, then God is obligated to do this. And when God doesn't, it leaves you frustrated and disappointed. Your faith is not a commodity. And your relationship with God is not transactional. People who truly worship God have made a prior commitment to God that whatever you do, I'm going to remain faithful. Whatever you do, I'm going to remain faithful. And I don't say this to dishearten you, but my intention is to not make your commitment to God contingent on God acting on your behalf. And even if he doesn't act on your behalf, you won't abandon him. But, but I at least want to leave you with some, some better news than that. I said I, I wouldn't go to the end of the story, but, but I'm a preacher. I, I, I'm entitled to, to say some, some small lies from the pulpit. <laughs> The end of the story ends with this miraculous account of the rescue of the Hebrew boys. And, and my intention in, in preaching this is, has been to say that the, the story wouldn't change even if God didn't rescue them. That, that we can't always count on God to do what we think he should do because God is free to do what he wants us to do. But we do have this one assurance that comes from the text. That God will be present with you in whatever you go through in life. God will be present with you in whatever you go through in life. Now they say confession is good for the soul, but confession is also at times bad for the reputation, but I'm just gonna tell you this anyway. Despite how big I am, I can't fight. That don't mean you need to run up on me or nothing like that. <laughs> but I can't fight. And I knew I couldn't fight when, when I was just a small boy. I was constantly being bullied in school by people who were smaller than me. And, and on one day I, I ran home and walked inside the house and, and my mom noticed that I was visibly shaking. She asked me what happened and, and I told her that this, this little but older, little but older boy was picking on me and he had pushed me down and my mom asked him did, did 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 you fight him and I told her no I was afraid to fight him and she was like no 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 that's not how my children act tomorrow morning you're gonna go to that school and as soon as you see him you're gonna fight him I'm like ah oh, mama I don't know if I can beat him but she said he gonna keep messing with you if you don't stand your ground. So that next morning, I, I, I woke up, got dressed, 
My knees were shaking because I was so afraid. Well, then I saw my mom walk out of her room and she was also dressed like she was going to come to school with me. And I thought to myself, oh, this must mean my mama going to set that boy straight. She going to grab him and, and tell him, don't be messing with my baby. So I asked her, mama, you going to come with me and, and, and fight the boy, boy for me? And she said, well, well, part of that is true. I'm going to come with you but I'm not going to fight the boy for you. What I am going to do is be there to pick you up after he beats your tail. <laughs> and God might not always be there to fight the battles for you, but he'll always be there with you to pick you back.